Okay, let me ask you to find a, a spot if you can. We have seats for all of you, and we're grateful to you for being here. I love the fact that I live in a world in which Steve Murdoch is a draw. Can I just say? That is the kind of world, the kind of world that I want to live in is the kind of world where people think, I'm not going to go to all that other stuff. I'm going to Steve Murdoch. I just absolutely adore um, I'm Evan Smith, the Editor-in-Chief of the Tribune. I appreciate you being here. I hope you've enjoyed yourself today. It's been super fun, uh, and uh, we love to have the opportunity to put this event on, and we are grateful to the UT Austin folks and South by Southwest and Walmart and all of our sponsors for what they've done to make it possible, but especially to all of you for being here, because you make it possible really for us to do this. Uh, Steve, how many years have you done this festival? Every year you've had it. I think you're, the fi you're the, in the five-timer club. Yeah. I think we should give him a frequent flyer card or something. It's great. Steve is, um, I think maybe Renew Couture and maybe there are a couple handful of others, but mostly it's just you. I love that. And the, and the reason is, in all sincerity, that there are very few people like Steve, not only in Texas, but in the rest of the country. Um, you know Steve Murdoch is the former state demographer and the former director of the U.S. Census Bureau. Uh, his base of operations is Rice University, where he's the founding director of the Hobby Center for the Study of Texas, and he is the Alan R. and Gladys M. Klein Professor in Sociology. That's the formal part of his bio. The uh, uh, informal or unofficial part of his bio is, and we all talk about him this way when he's not around, he is the prophet. <laughs> he's the person everybody turns to to find out what the population of Texas, and now by extension the U.S., will look like in 10 years or 20 years or 50 years. And from a legislative standpoint, all of us are concerned about the work of the legislature and, and politics and policy. The importance of those numbers is not just as numbers, but as a roadmap to where we're headed and a roadmap to what we need to do to get there, because those things don't always connect in everybody's minds. Um, my old uh, magazine, Texas Monthly, in 2005 called him one of the 25 most influential people in the state. I might have had a thumb on the scale when we made the list. But the reality is that when he talks, people listen. All of you listen and other people listen. Um, his presentation today is called You're Welcome America, Texas in 2050. And he's going to really give you a peek at research he's done in connection with a new book that will give you a, a real perspective, I think, on what the population of the state and what the country will look like and what it all means for all of us. Please welcome my friend, our friend, the great Steve Murdoch. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that very nice introduction. I, I don't always get such nice introductions, and, and that's not because people want to be rude to me, but it's because I'm a demographer, and they don't quite know what a demographer is. And, and I remember very well I was in a small community in East Texas, and the gentleman who had been given the job of introducing me had gotten ill at the very last moment, so they handed the, you know, my, my introduction to another gentleman. He got up, and I could tell he was having trouble with the word, and I was guessing it was that word demographer, but he got up and he said, well, you know, Dr. Murdoch's done a lot of things. He's done a lot of rural things, and he's done a lot of damn, damn well. I guess he's best just seen as a rural demagoguer. <laughs> well, I'm not going to try to be either rural or urban demagoguer today. And I've got two screens, so you're going to see me because, I'm, as I always do, I'm going to show a lot of slides, but I'm going to show you in each case what numbers you need to look at. Uh, because I often show just a couple of numbers in my slides. Well, let's start off by looking at this slide. This is a slide that I like to say shows that in every period of time since Texas first allowed the US to join it, we have grown more rapidly. 
than the country as a whole. But if you look down, uh, oh, don't want to do that. If you look down this area and compare these two, you'll see that in all cases, Texas has grown more rapidly in every period of time. That growth has been very pervasive. But one of the things I like to get off the, so to speak, off the chest of people right away is this issue of undocumented or unauthorized immigrants. And the reason I do that is because there's such wild numbers out there. And the people who do the best work in this area, as far as I'm concerned, I think most professional demographers look at it that way, uh, is the Pew Hispanic Center. And a guy by the name of Jeff Passell that I cite down there is a graduate of the University of, of Texas at Austin, a PhD program in demography, uh, and a native of the, of the uh, city of Dallas. His, in fact, his parents still live there. And so I asked him, I said, Jeff, you know, how do you know, you know, you say there are 11 or 12 million undocumented immigrants in the country, and there's people out there saying there's 30 or 40 million of them. How do you know, after all, they're undocumented? And what he says is pretty convincing to me. He says, you know, Steve, there is one thing you cannot hide, and that is dying. And if there are really 30 or 40 million of these people, they are the healthiest group of people who have ever walked the face of the earth because they die at a level of about uh, 10 to 12. Now, if you look at Texas, we think we're somewhere in the 1.6 to 1.7 uh, million. That's a large number, uh, one of the largest in the country with California. Uh, so our growth has been, however, very extensive. And what I'm going to show you, by the way, in terms of today, is I'm going to show you some patterns that you'll see in Texas, and then I'm going to argue, as the title suggests, that when I started doing this 20-some, well, 30-some years ago, what I'd always say, well, but you know, Texas is very different than the country. I can't say that anymore. Increasingly, the country and Texas look alike in lots of regards. Now, one way that we don't look alike is that we've got a lot more growth uh, than, the, uh, than many other parts of the country. If you look at these slides, for example, look at that last, slide, last uh, column on the right, uh, you can see that we had greater growth in this uh, most recent uh, period of time, and we've got the most recent numbers we have through, through 2014. But you can see we grew more than even California, and California is 12 million larger than we are. And we had a larger numerical increase than they did. If you look at us in terms of, again, just percentages and changes, Again, we see Texas at the top of that chart. If we look at it in terms of, well, this one shows percentage change. And there really is only one reason why you're looking at this slide. And that is because I am a native of the great state of North Dakota, and I never thought I'd see North Dakota at the top of any population chart. <laughs> now, some of my friends here in Texas like to say, but Steve, it was only 66,000 compared to one, our 1.8 million, but I say a percent is a percent. <laughs> this is cities, MSAs, metropolitan areas. And the thing I want you to see up there is if you go from the top of that chart and you start reading uh, the cities, and you look at, this is numerical growth, so the right-hand most column there shows the amount of growth from April 1st of 2010 to July 1st of 2014. You can see that Houston, the MSA, you know, at about uh, six and a half million, and, and Dallas Fort Worth at about seven million, and New York at 20 million. Notice that our two MSAs 
where their six and a half to seven million had greater numerical increase than New York's MSA with 20 million. And when you have that kind of numerical change, and there's another little place on there that might be familiar with you, to you, and that's that Austin Round Rock area. You know what's really phenomenal about that? If you figure it out, what it says, that in the period from April 1st of 2010 to July 1st of 2014, you know, for a little over four years, okay, in time, one of every eight people that live in this metropolitan area came during that four and a quarter year period. One of every eight. So, you know, look around if we were doing that like we did in high school, you know, I'd look, have you all you Austinites so set together and I'd have you point to one another that one of eight that has come in that most recent period of time. But tremendous population growth. I want to do another pattern. I'm going to do a whole bunch of slides like this. So what I want you to look at here is really only one thing. I want you to look at the percent of total change which is due to each of the racial and ethnic groups. So you see non-Hispanic white, this is Texas, that last decade, 11%, 10.8% was due to non-Hispanic whites. About 65% was due, uh, as you can see, uh, to Hispanics. And we'll look at that. This is Texas. You can see about 10, 11% due to non-Hispanic whites of the growth, total growth, 65% due to Hispanics, about 12% to African-Americans, about another 12% to, to uh, non-Hispanic uh, or to Asians and others. And if you look at the under 18, look at this chart. Look at the number for non-Hispanic white children. It is a negative number. And you see when you look at the number right below it, uh, in terms of that, if you go to the numerical increase under population change, although the number of non-Hispanic white kids declined by 184,000, the number of Hispanic kids increased by 930-some thousand people. Now, a lot of people would say, well, you know, how does that distribute it? I mean, there's still lots of people of all groups everywhere. Well, this is a simple chart. I'm going to show you. Blue means growth. Red means decline. This is a non-Hispanic white population. We have uh, 254 counties. Those that are in kind of pink are ones where there's too small an increase to really count on it meaning any trends. But you see we had 161 counties that had declining non-Hispanic white populations, and we had 91 that had growing non-Hispanic white populations. Now, if we look at the Hispanic population, the reason I show this, notice where all the blue is. Because I can tell you, even here in Texas, a lot of people will say, well, I know there's a lot of Hispanic growth down in the valley. <laughs> but it's everywhere, OK? And you can see how tremendous the, the uh, how widespread Hispanic population growth is. This is African-American population. They're blue there, which is growth is primarily in that triangle area from Dallas-Fort Worth on down uh, you know, through Austin, San Antonio, and on over to Houston. Uh, but that red is primarily, and this is true across the South, by the way, is in areas that were part of the Old South. Those areas have been losing African-American populations for decades. Now, and this is the Asian population. Lots of areas that have too few to count, that is that pinkish numbers, but very much a concentration in terms of uh, the triangle part of Texas. Well, again, this is Texas. We expect lots of Hispanic growth. Uh, in per parts. Let's look at the U.S. as a whole. 
Now, if you look up here under this slide, it says percent of the, the percent of total change column. Notice that 8.3, that's the proportion of change in the U.S. population that was due to non-Hispanic whites. Remember, that was 10.8 for Texas. The impact, the growth in the non-Hispanic white population was less in the United States percentage-wise than it was in Texas. And the Hispanic, about 55% of the growth. Well, let's look at a few slides again. Again, blue means growth, uh, red means decline. This is, the, this is the under 18. I should have said about this first. Notice that first figure up there. That is the decline of 4.3 million non-Hispanic white children from 2000 to 2010, offset by an increase of almost 4.8 million Hispanic children. In fact, had it not been for the growth in the Hispanic population, we would have had one of the largest declines in the child population in the history of the United States. So let's take a look at the pervasiveness of this with some slides. Blue is growth, red is decline. We got, as you see, about 3,200 counties or so. Uh, about 3,300, uh, you can see that not Hispanic white, kind of a mixed bag across the country. Uh, blue is the growth and red is decline. You see in Texas we've got that triangle we always talk about. But remember blue is growth, red is decline. This is the non-Hispanic white population. This is the Hispanic population. Now you'll see some counties up there in the Great Plains where there aren't very many uh, Hispanics, so the, the numbers are really not meaningful. But anyone who thinks that the growth in the Hispanic population is a California, Texas, Florida, maybe New Mexico, and a few other states thrown in is absolutely wrong. Absolutely wrong. You can see it simply from the numbers. And this is the African-American population. Notice that loss across the rural south. Lots of concentration on the two coasts. And finally, you look at the Asian population. Of course, lots of pink counties, that is counties that have too few to really legitimately talk about change. And again, most of the concentration on the, on the uh, uh, two coasts. Well, okay. So Texas has this and the U.S. as a whole has this, but how pervasive is it? So I want to look at those same two slides. That is the total pop and the under 18 pop. But I want to look at for the regions, and I want you to just look for a minute and see what these regions are, because we're going to talk about the Midwest, the Northeast, you know, the, the West and the South. Uh, so let's look at these for just a few minutes. This is the Northeast region. Lost 1.3 million, that is a decline, not a loss, but a decline in the number of non-Hispanic whites. An increase of 1.7 million Hispanics. See those on those numbers if you go down the numerical thing? And you can see the changes that are involved. This is the under 18. Northeast decline of 1.2 million non-Hispanic white children, offset in part by about 432,000 increase in number of Hispanic children. Midwest, loss, again, almost 300,000 non-Hispanic white, but an increase, as you can see, of over uh, 1.5 million in terms of uh, uh, Hispanics. This is the, okay, this is the less than 18. Look at that decline in the non-Hispanic number of white children, offset in part by a substantial increase in the Hispanic population. This is the South region. South grew, everyone, every group grew in, in the South, but an increase of 2.7 million. But in terms of, this is now the whole South. This isn't just Texas. This is from Texas on over through Florida and Georgia and Alabama and all that, et cetera. 
and you see an increase of over 6.5 million uh, Hispanics. And if we take the child, children there again, again, another loss, substantial loss for non-Hispanic white children, a substantial gain for uh, the number of Hispanic children. And finally, the West region. West region had growth, just like the South did in both groups, but much greater growth. About, as you can see, about 1 million to about 5.3 million increase, 1 million being the non-Hispanic white, 5 million uh, being the Hispanic population. And if we look less than 18, again, substantial decline in the number of non-Hispanic white uh, uh, children and a substantial increase in the number of Hispanic children. Well, why show all those data? Simply to show that when we talk about thank you America, et cetera, the, the, the title of this presentation, what we're really saying is that, yes, for years we thought Texas was this place that had these unique patterns, or at least in much more accentuated patterns, but the reality of it is that these patterns are increasingly national patterns. They are not just a few states, they're not just the traditional states that we think of with large Hispanic and other uh, populations. Well, I've got to show you just a few more of these. Because this is central cities. You know, these are the counties, that, you know, these are the Harris counties, the Travis counties, et cetera. And we always think of those as having larger minority populations. And you can see here, uh, this is central cities in the United States, increase of about 253,000 non-Hispanic whites increase in the number of Hispanics in central cities in the United States of 13 million people. Now, what about children? Look at the decline in metropolitan central cities, three, over 3 million, 3.3 million decline in the number of non-Hispanic whites, increase of about 4 million Hispanics. Now, what about suburbs? Well, suburbs here we see what we'd expect, increase, substantial increase, about 1.5 million in the number of non-Hispanic whites, but also a pretty good increase of over 850,000 in terms of Hispanic population. And if you look at the less than 18, again, even in the suburbs overall, there was a decline in the number of non-Hispanic white children, offset by a substantial increase in the number of Hispanic children. And finally, in rural areas. Rural areas had increases in both, as you can see from looking at these numbers, increases in both groups. And what you see is that the under 18, again, notice the size. Notice the size of those decreases in the non-Hispanic white child population and the increase in the number of Hispanic children. So the changes we're seeing demographically are truly pervasive across the country. They're not just Texas patterns. They're not just a few places in the country. Well, population is one thing. But let's look for a few minutes at some of the demographic characteristics. And here, we're going to look at a lot of numbers again, but we're only going to look at a couple of things. And that is, what I want you to do is I want you to note, for example, for 2010, that these poverty rates, the 26.8, the 24.7 the uh, over there uh, under the 2010 values, okay, uh, these two numbers, are the poverty rate. And you see that as we go through these, two to three times the poverty rates for Hispanics and African Americans as for non-Hispanic whites. And incomes, it'll somewhere be between somewhere in 60 and 75 percent of what the incomes are for whites. Now, we see this, as you see, for Texas. But this is Austin, two to three to one, same kind of pattern. This is the Dallas MSA, 
two to three to one, about 60 to 75 percent. So you're looking here, you know, 7 percent here, and 23 percent here, and 23 percent here. Three times as much uh, uh, poverty, if you will, for Hispanics and African Americans. And uh, this is Houston Sugarland, almost four times in some cases, okay, uh, in terms of poverty levels for uh, non-Hispanic whites, I mean for uh, Hispanics and African Americans, as is true uh, for non-Hispanic whites. Now, if we look at San Antonio, interesting pattern, but notice that for, in, in general, San Antonio's populations, Hispanics and African Americans, but particularly Hispanics and some other slides we'll see, are less different. Now that's about three times, but you'll see as we go forward that many of the numbers for Hispanics in San Antonio look better. Now why is that? Pardon? It's Hispanic middle class. The Hispanics have been there as long or longer than the Anglos. Okay? And you know, and one of the indications of that, I'll tell you one little anecdote. I was speaking to the Hispanic chamber one time in San Antonio. And as they often do with the speaker, they say, you go sit at that table, don't get lost, and maybe some people will join you. Well, they started to, to join me, and they were all young Hispanics, less than 35 years of age. To me, anybody less than 35 is awfully, awfully young. <coughs> but they sat down, and there was three or four of them sitting together, and this one young lady says to her friend, you know, my grandmother jabbers at me, and I can't understand a word she says. And her friend says, you know, I have the same problem. So I'm sitting here at the Hispanic chamber, right? So I end up with, I said, a group of all under 35, and I said to you, how many of you do not speak Spanish? Five of the ten did not speak Spanish. Well, my name is Murdoch. I don't speak much Gaelic. Okay? And most of you don't speak much of the heritage uh, areas from which you came. Uh, and that is part of that process of change that we see. And so we'll see another San Antonio numbers. And this is the U.S. Let's look and see. We're still looking at two to three times uh, the number when we look here for poverty uh, in this area as we do for, for Hispanics and, non and uh, African Americans as we see for non-Hispanic whites. Uh, when we look at it in terms of the Northeast, similar kinds of patterns, that similar kind of pr proportional change. Uh, the Midwest, similarly, three, sometimes in this case, uh, two to three times the poverty level and incomes that are only 60 to 75 percent. And the South has the same patterns as well. My point here is simply to say that whether we look at the demographic or the socioeconomic, we are seeing increased similarity in the characteristics of populations within subgroups. Uh, and this is finally the Western region, again, the same kind of pattern. Well, let's look at educational attainment. And here I want you to look at one number and one number only. And that is, I want you to look at the percent of Hispanics with less than a high school degree. Now, I'm going to change this for the next slide. This number is going to, the Hispanics are going to move to the third. But this is Texas, 40%, as you see. If you look at this one where we've changed it down to be the third row, what do you see? This is Austin. Okay, let me go back here. Okay, this is, this is Austin. Okay, and what do we see? 39%, basically. If we go and look at Dallas, 
56% of Hispanics in Dallas have less than high school level of education. And if we look at Houston, 50.9%. Uh, Educational issues that are very, very critical to our understanding of where we are. And this again, uh, we look at San Antonio. San Antonio, this is one of the areas where I'm talking about. Notice San Antonio's numbers for, uh, for Hispanics are somewhat less than our larger, other large big cities. I think it's the same factor that we talked about a while ago. And this simply shows something we'll talk about in greater detail, but what it shows is that, you know, again, why we had the title we did, because look how different, when you particularly look at these two red columns, is the United States from the overall pattern for Texas. We're not, we used to be a lot more different in those factors than we are today in terms of certainly the total rate. Uh, and if we go on, we'll look at this just here. This is the Hispanic. Again, uh, when you look at <clears throat> uh, the less than high school rate, again, much more, almost four times as much uh, for uh, Hispanic poverty relative to non-Hispanic white. Uh, this is the Northeast, the Midwest, similar pattern of change. When you look at the southern region, again, a similar uh, pattern with, with, as you see, 36 versus about 11 here, uh, substantial, uh, substantial differences. And finally, the western region as well. Well, what about the future? Let's take a look at Texas for a few minutes. This is one of the projections out there. And if you look at this, what you see is we expect Texas to grow quite a bit. In fact, we expect, if you look at that bottom scenario, which we think is most likely to occur, if you look at this, every column goes up. Every column goes up. Now, however, if you look at the columns in terms of percentages, notice what happens to the percentage of non-Hispanic whites. Non-Hispanic whites, you know, by 2010 was the, was the, was the uh, decade, the census decade, which we became a majority-minority state. Uh, but if you look at where we're going, that 45 goes, uh, that we have under non-Hispanic whites under that third, 45.3 goes down to 21.8 by 2050. If we look at Hispanics, it goes from about 38% up to about 56% uh, during that same period of time. And if you want to see where the differences, one of the differences lies, look at that bottom row and look at the percent 65 plus by 2050. There'll be about 13% of Hispanics that will be 65 plus but people that look like me, about 28% of us will be 65 plus. Now, this, if you can look at, uh, let's go on from this. You know, we, we actually overall, if we go back a little bit, what you see is that 65 plus is going to be a pretty large number under any guise. Uh, that is, if you look here, you see that in 10 per, in, in 20, 10, only 10% was 65 plus. By 65, we're going to have about 17% or so that's 65 plus. And, you know, I teach my students in the demography class, and they always have a similar thing. They said, you know, Dr. Murdoch, we, we want, to, want you to not be, take offense at this, but we look at these statistics, and some of us would like to know where we could live that we wouldn't have to live next to you old people. And I try to be accommodating professor. I say, well, let me look into it. Let me see areas. Now, remember this dark blue up here is the areas that in 2010 
uh, as you can see, had over 20% of their population that was 65 plus. Well, this is the, you know, this is the, the projection for 2050, and I'll just let you see that. Now, the good news is there's some of you out here, is that if you're an aging Aggie, you can still go back to College Station. <laughs> okay? That's one of those red counties out there. There's one up in the Panhandle that has a, a particular religious group that has a fairly young population. And the others, I'm not up on exactly. Well, they all have a good reason for being as they are. <clears throat> but aged population is certainly going to be one of the factors. Well, here we're going to look at the counties in Texas, the major counties. And here, all I want you to do is to look at the 2010 non-Hispanic white number and then the 2050 number at the very bottom of the page. Uh, that is, I want you to look for each of these areas at this number and compare it to this number. So for Harris County, going to go from about 1.3 million non-Hispanic whites down to about 784,000. That's going to be from 33% of the population. Now, keep in mind, in Harris County already, in 2010, 33% of the population was non-Hispanic white. 67% and the largest single group at 41% was Hispanic. But by 2050, we're talking about 10% and 63% uh, you know, uh, or so. If we look at Dallas County, well, even a larger decline, and down to about 7% of the total population in Dallas County being non-Hispanic white. And if we look at Bear County, uh, you see this change. Um, not as much of a dec decrease, and certainly uh, still a decrease from 30% non-Hispanic white down about 14%, while the Hispanic goes from 58 to 67, even in Bear County. And Travis County, well, uh, again, we see uh, it's one of the areas that has growth, but the percentage still declines from 50% to about 30% uh, in terms of the total population. Well, what about the U.S.? Now, these numbers are in thousands. So that bottom right-hand number, that 420, is 420 million people. But I want you to go down each of those columns of numbers, white alone, black alone, et cetera, and notice they all go up except one column. That's the white alone column. Okay? All of the other population groups in the nation as a whole are going to increase. And this is the, the numerical change that we expect to see for each and every racial and ethnic group. Non-Hispanic whites are going to decline by almost 18 million, and you can see Hispanics are going to increase by about 78 million. And this is a, a pie chart. Now, some of you are going to notice that this is an unusual pie chart, because generally you can't be listed on a pie chart if you, unless you have a part of the pie. But a young man did this, slide, did this particular slide for me, and when he brought it to me, I said, what are you doing? He said, what do you mean? I said, non-Hispanic whites declined. You've got them up there at 0%. Why? I mean, they're not part of the pie, because this pie is increased. And he said, you know, Dr. Murdoch, I just couldn't leave them off the slide. <laughs> OK, this is the population in terms of that aging again. And this is the country as a whole. Notice that 13 on the bottom row from 13% to almost 22%. And here I want you to notice, this is 2010, and notice that column for non-Hispanic white alone. Notice that in every age group, non-Hispanic whites are over 50% of the total population. Every age group in 2010. This is 2060, and in 2060, Census Bureau does a little, is a little more ambitious, does 10 years longer than we do, but you can see only one age group 
that 65 plus are non-Hispanic whites, over 50% of the population. Well, let's talk about education. Because I think most of us that look at this chart recognize something that's very obvious. Unless we change some of the socioeconomic characteristics that go with the demographic characteristics, we as a state, and the reason for our title, the country as a whole is having similar patterns, and the country as a whole will be poorer. Poorer than it is today in real dollar terms. And why do all of us in education push this? Well, you might say, goodness sakes, he's a college professor. What would you expect him to bring up as what might change this? But I want to show you this, because this is national data, and it is always, everywhere, every year the same. Has been for the 35 years or so that I've been watching this. And that is what it shows is that unemployment rate goes down as your education goes up. So 10.7%, you know, down there to about 3.9% if you got a higher level of education. And notice what happens if we look at median weekly incomes. They go up, you know, from here to here, tripling basically. Tremendous difference, and it's an educational difference. And now I want to show you this chart. And uh, I was talking to David Farabee over here, and I had told David uh, that I like to have a cash reward because you got to listen to me. And, but I like to pick out somebody who you know, I can pick on. So I was picking on David, and I said, now, David, all you have to do is to be, is be able to recite every number on that chart, and you know, I'm going to give you $10. And he turned me down flat. Can you imagine that? Okay. But here, what I want you to notice is that for every racial and ethnic group, as you go from left to right on that slide, for every single occupational group, incomes rise. Even if you're working as an operative or a laborer, the more education you have, the higher your median household income. And again, this happens to be for Texas, but it's true for the US. It's true for every state that I look. Education really does pay. It pays in returns to household income. Now let's talk about the two education systems, the Texas and US, for just a few minutes. This is a chart, and I'd like you to just compare where we were in 1990 to 2010. And this is the percent of populations in those groups that were in, in college. And we had 25% non-Hispanic whites in 1990. 2000, we had about 34%, about a 9% increase. If you look at African Americans, we had a 12%, went up to 19.7%, okay? Almost an 8% increase. If you look at Hispanics, it went from 7.3 to 11.6, okay? About 4.3. And you had a small increase as well of only 4 or 5% for non-Hispanic Asians and others, but look at the level that they were already at. Well, here, if we look at public education, this is all of public education. So this is elementary, secondary colleges, universities, etc., community colleges. Notice the decline here for total public education, the decline here, but notice the increases, that is the declines in the number of non-Hispanic white kids enrolled, and notice the increase in the number of Hispanic kids that are on roll. Now, 
That means in percentage terms, we're going to see in terms of Texas total education group, we're going to see 61% that will become Hispanic by 2060. That's all public education. This is elementary and secondary. And now let's move and look at community colleges, public universities in the total. Again, what we see is declines for non-Hispanic whites, increases particularly uh, in the number of kids that are involved uh, that are Hispanic. And this is the percentages again, similar kinds of patterns, except uh, one of the ones that's not so good here is if you compare under Hispanic 2050 community college enrollment rates and then you compare public university rates. There's a 10% drop for Hispanics from one to the other. And that's uh, what we see often with populations with very limited socioeconomic resources, but it is not good news as we go forward. Well, this simply shows the percent change. Again, much more, more, almost all of our change are very large. Well, all of our change is going to be from non-Anglo non groups. And here's one of the reasons. And I'll probably have somebody throw something at me at this particular group. But you know, in real dollar terms, if you took the period from 2000 to 2010, and you took an enrollment, and so you're looking at general revenues for elementary and secondary and other education programs, Okay, and you're looking at it per capita, so to speak, uh, and you're looking at it in real dollar terms, that is controlled for inflation. What did we do to elementary and secondary? Well, we increased their expenditures or their appropriations by a whopping 3%. That's good news. What did we do to colleges, public colleges and universities? Decrease of 28% during that decade. So when I said this one time, some said, some guy, spoke up and he said, now I understand why I'm paying so much more for tuition uh, for my children in college. This has been what we've done in the last uh, several decades. Well, U.S. patterns are similar. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those. I want you to see that we're looking at, at growth in 1990-2010, you know, uh, pretty good growth overall. Uh, this is the growth we expect by race, ethnicity, and uh, again, keep in mind that smaller percent or larger percentages are easier on smaller bases. So the reason this one's larger than the Hispanic uh, is because of that. But look at the growth, and then look at what's happening in non-Hispanic whites. Public, elementary, and secondary over the United States, down by 10% over the next 50 years. Uh, and if you look at expenditures, again, similar patterns in terms of keeping up with the Joneses. And this is the absolute numbers. Now, these are in... Uh, in thousands, so that we're talking about <clears throat> a million kids here. So we're talking about 27 million, uh, for example, when we look at this uh, uh, fourth figure down under the Hispanic column at the top, okay? So we're seeing very real changes, and again, the largest increases uh, in, the, uh, non -Hispanic, uh, in the Hispanic population. And again, the very same kind of, of percentage uh, changes in terms of the majority of our population, and all of these ending up uh, being either Hispanic or a combination of Hispanic and African-American. Uh, let's take, this is, this is uh, financial need, and I want you to look at just one thing here, and look across from 2010 to 2060, look for community colleges, for public universities, and look at the uh, increase in the number of people, this is kids in college, that are going to need uh, substantial financial assistance. Well, one of the things that 
I found in another Pew Hispanic Center publication that I thought was very interesting. Is they said, you know, there's often a lot of speculation out there that some minority groups, and often they talk about Hispanics, is the problem is that they don't recognize how important college is. Well, Pew said, let's go out and ask this question of groups. And they went out and did a, a random sample. This is a few years old now. And they asked the question, is college education necessary to get ahead in life? 89% of Hispanic youth said yes. 88% of Hispanic youth and or 16 and older, so it included the parents and everybody else that there, said 88% versus 74% of the entire US population. And 94% of Hispanic immigrants said the key to success was a college education. And this one, they ask a bunch of Hispanic youth, what do, you, what, what do my, your parents think is the most important thing you can do after high school? Two-thirds of Hispanics say their parents would say, and the reason it's in red, because they said it was so pervasive, they said, go to college. So the idea that some groups don't recognize that college is important uh, really isn't borne out by the data that, that uh, at least these researchers have. Well, let me end with this. What happens if nothing happens? What happens, we talked about it years ago for Texas, but what happens if it's not only a Texas phenomenon, but the US as a whole doesn't change the socioeconomics that go with our demographics? Now, this is a chart for the US from a book that we'll talk about in a few minutes, but this is a chart which shows aggregate household income, aggregate net worth, average household uh, income, again, or at aggregate and average net worth per household, households in poverty, etc. And if we were just keeping even with things, weren't decreasing, all of those bars would stop at where that gray bar is. The only thing on our present course that we are going to have and exceed that line is poverty. All of the others, we will actually overall net, not just for those populations, but for the society as a whole, we'll have these kind of figures. This is poverty. Now again, the first bar is 2010, where we were at that point in time. And this is where we would be in 2060. Poverty will either go from 13.8 up to 16.2. But if we could close all those gaps, if we could close those socioeconomic differences, we would go down to a poverty rate of 11.1. For per capita income, we can go from 27 down to about 25, or we could go up to 58 if we could close those gaps. If median income, we could go from 71 down to 67 which is what, we ha what happens if we do nothing and we continue on the route that we're on. Or if we could close those gaps, you can see we could be up there over $111,000 in terms of mean, per cap mean household income. This is consumer expenditures, down $4,000 or up $27,000. <laughs> I had to show you this slide because I know, knew that you would be deeply moved. But, and if you're interested, by the way, we have two books, both that came out, one that came out last year and one that's just coming out now. 
that talks about this in detail. One's the t changing Texas uh, uh, factors, and this is one that talks about the same thing for the U.S., and what we're doing in this presentation is comparing both of those. So if you're interested, let me know. Uh, and I usually don't hawk my own wares like this. I really don't. But you know, I'm, I have one brother, and I have one sister. And when these two books came out pretty much the same period of time, they called me up. They said, we want to do a conference call with you. And I knew something was wrong because they started out by saying, we want you to know that we both love you. <laughs> we love you a great deal. We always have loved you. And no matter what, we'll continue to love you. But we simply cannot afford to buy all the copies of your book that are sold. So I promised them I'd at least mention it to other crowds. Well, so what's the bottom line of this? The bottom line is that our population is changing, and it is changing in ways that are irreversible. For example, I was once quoted, and I never said this, but the headline read, it's basically over for Anglos. And I didn't like that line, but it basically is in a demographic sense. Why am I saying that? Our fertility has been below, you can only grow by two ways in population. Through natural increase, that's the excess of births or fertility over mortality, or as a result of migration. If you're talking about the country, it's immigration. If you're talking about Texas, it's migration from other states as well as from other countries. And for natural increase, our population has had below replacement, Anglo populations have had below replacement fertility for 25 years. The average non-Hispanic white woman in the United States and in Texas is 42 years of age. So if we're going to produce a lot more children, we had better get at it. Okay? The average Hispanic woman, and by the way, immigration, which would be the other way. Where would they have to come from? Europe? Europe is the oldest, slowest growing major region of the world and the only major region of the world that the United Nations projects to have fewer people in it in 2050 than it did in 2000. On the other hand, the average Hispanic woman in the United States and in Texas is 27 years of age. Well, there are a lot of childbearing years between 27 and 42. And the, the probability of growth is, is, is there through immigration as well. But let me throw one figure in on immigration that I think it's important to tell because certain political figures don't seem to be able to read statistical data. Because you know what the reality of it is, and a very good demographer from the University of Texas at San Antonio by the name of Rogelio Sainz has examined undocumented immigration from Mexico to the US, and it has declined by 300,000 people in the last 10 years. We're talking about 600,000, not 1.1 million, not 10 million, not any of those figures that are out there. They're just, frankly, absurd. So, Yes, we'll see some growth, but the growth is certainly not going to be through non-Hispanic whites. African-Americans' fertility, by the way, has been declining and is about now below replacement, just going below replacement. And there's, a, there's certainly a potential there with the large continent of Africa, but so far we're not seeing much permanent change in terms of, of African populations. Uh, Gene Robinson has a great book out, I forget the name right now, talking about the differences in, in the African-American populations. So the point of it is that the populations and, and, and 
let's talk about Asian populations. Well, one of the reasons you see all the big percentages uh, is that the uh, Asian populations that we're talking about are relatively small. And of course, what you can get is if you have a smaller numerical number, you know, a smaller change gives you a larger percentage change. And I often hear, and this is one of the things that I, I just have to say a little bit about, I often hear, well, you know, uh, and please don't take this wrong, I don't mean this in any way disparaging of any group, but I'll, I'll hear people say, well, but you know, those, those Asian immigrants that come are so much different than those from some other parts of the country, they're better educated, da 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 Well, what does it take for resources for me to immigrate from China versus immigrating from Mexico? Probably a few other resources. So what you should be comparing their, pro their success to is other people in the same socioeconomic levels relative to their own countries, meaning they start out being people that are better, 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 better educated in terms of total population change. Well, let me clear through all of that and simply say the bottom line. The bottom line is that the future, not only of Texas, but of the United States is tied to its minority populations, particularly its Hispanic population. And how well they do is how well we all will do. Well, thank you. <laughs> Question. Questions. Questions. Yes. Hi, Steve. Deborah Danberg. Um, when you're on your statistics, do you include among Asians the Indians? Yes, obviously. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And um, you were giving some uh, data about what you were expecting for people who look like you mm -hmm. being over 65. And it's my observation that 100% of people who look like you are over 65. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what you've been doing is you've been looking at that picture that was in the Tribune thing on this thing. I looked at that and I said, oh, I don't know that man. He's 85 years old. I got to talk to Evan about that. I, I don't even remember that picture. Anyway, yes, uh, yes, ma'am. You go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, okay. I didn't see you. Do the the economic numbers include a likelihood that as the non-Hispanic white, the Hispanic population becomes the majority, they will hire people like themselves, like whites hire people like themselves, and that overall there should be a an opportunity for, for improvement? Well, the, the, the thing that contradicts that is that studies show, uh, you know, let's just say we're talking about manual labor, okay? If I need somebody to move rocks from here to there, I don't have to worry too much about what their educational qualifications are. But it doesn't matter whether I'm Anglo or Hispanic. If I need an accountant to make sure that my tax forms are all right for the IRS, I better be educated. I better be able to do it. So we might see some of that, but we're not going to see, unless we have the education the same, we're not going to, to see uh, the changes in these jobs that are the best paying that would help most to change those socioeconomics. Thank you. Yes, yes ma'am. Uh, is the decline in non-Hispanic uh, white children is mostly due to um, non-Hispanic white people not having children, or some of it 
uh, related to interracial marriage and interracial um, families. Well, and I'm curious what role that plays in the overall it, um, opportunities it, and it plays, poverty. Well, it, it plays a role, but the numbers we're talking about yeah, is not a, not a function okay. of, of, of that. If you, if you, uh, uh, you know, uh, the intermarriage rates are, you know, it depends on, on, on groups. They're actually higher uh, for higher income peoples, the intermarriage rates, than they are for lower income peoples. And in part, because as you're lower income, you tend to be much more concentrated in certain, in certain parts of towns and cities. So people, who do you meet? You meet somebody like you with a greater likelihood than if you're, uh, you know, at the University of Texas cool. at Austin yeah. kinds of thing. Okay, yeah. thank you. Yes, ma'am. Hi, yeah, I was wondering if you had read that New York Times article a few weeks back talking about the cost of college and the like value added on college did not apply to African Americans and Hispanics as much as, basically, African Americans and Hispanics of my generation that went to college did not make as much money as whites or Asians that went to college, and in some cases actually made less money than if they, than people who hadn't gone to college. I was wondering how that well, related. Well, there's, there's certainly some truth to that, which probably, you know, uh, reflects discrimination in others, but one of the other factors that plays a role uh, and, and uh, uh, I mean, I'm a non-Hispanic white version of that, and that is uh, the first people to go to college generally lack uh, the same degree of science and mathematical skills as the people they're competing against. So when you look at their, their jobs and what they're doing, uh, it tends to be that those people that have been in highly educated families for more generations actually get in the more lucrative uh, jobs that require more technical knowledge. So then as a follow-up question, if like education is the silver bullet to stop the nation yeah. in Texas becoming more povertous, like if the first generation of college students that are African-American or Hispanic in this case aren't getting those monetary gains, then like... They are getting monetary gains. They're just not getting as much. Okay. So that there's a very small number of studies that show that the, 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 you know, the difference is pretty well meaningless. In most cases, it shows that college educations pay for everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, sir. I'll go. I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know who it's. Uh, okay, <laughs> maybe you were first, and I'll get back to you, sir. Sorry. Yeah. How much do the projections, particularly for Hispanics over the next several decades, uh, depend on patterns of immigration being similar to what they were over the last few decades? Uh, well, certainly some. Uh, the, as you go forward, of course, uh, what happens is that it because as a population gets larger, that larger population is increasingly native-born. So the more you go into the future, the less is due to immigration, the more that is due to the indigenous. But immigration will play a role. Immigration uh, certainly can decline, uh, but, but uh, and, and so it, we certainly could have some moderation of that, but I don't think enough to reverse everything. Yes, yes, sir. Yeah, this is somewhat related to immigration reform. Uh, several years ago, I was listening to our city demographer, and he was talking that prior to 9-11, the vast majority of illegal immigrants in this country from Mexico were male. And then post 9-11, when we started shutting down the border, um, that it, they started bringing their wives and kids over, which means, and, and so the kind of the demographics changed, which also meant 
that we were educating their kids, they were having babies. What do you think will happen if we do have immigration reform uh, where it make, makes it easier for people to immigrate here? What effect will that have on all of this? Well, I mean, I think uh, that will, there are two things. One is I think that it'll obviously increase the rate of immigration to the U.S. Uh, and I which, think it which will, I, by the way, I believe we need because I want someone to pay my Social Security. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, 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 you know, I go into these crowds, and this crowd's a little different than that, but, you know, and I look around and I say, boy, it's really great. I've got a bunch of people my own age, you know. <laughs> We'll be able to rock in those rocking chairs together, watch the sunset, you know, do all those sorts of things. And then I say, but wait a minute, who's going to pay for those rocking chairs? Because if you start looking, those of us, I mean, many people have savings and all that sort of stuff, but if you start looking at other programs, if we don't have a vibrant middle age and younger base of employees paying good uh, levels of taxes and other factors, we're all in trouble. It's not just those people that are in trouble. I use those in that kind of generic sense that it's sometimes unfortunately used. Uh, but it's all of us. So, so uh, you know, we've got to, do, to succeed on this. Because what I tried to show in those, those aggregate figures with the, with the bar charts is that, yes, the aggregate fact is that even though we old-time baby boomers are going to be there and we'll be doing our best, we will not be getting the kind of salaries from young adults uh, that we would have if we didn't, if we had, if we were able to ensure that all, all, all people had the skills and education uh, of Anglo population among the the minority populations of, te of Texas and the country. Yes, sir. Yes. Uh, talk for a minute. For one, one, you've advised political leaders for years in in Texas. Uh, if you had a trillion dollars over the next three or four sessions. You know, the first implication would be to maybe put it in education, mm -hmm. but dropout rates being what they are, uh, the intersection between dropout and po coming from families in poverty, is, is it, can you address one, can you separate those issues, and secondly, would you put it in higher education or would you put it in primary, that, that trillion dollars? Well. You know, I, I don't know if I can give you a simple answer for that, and I don't know if I know the answer for all of that. Uh, I, think, I think, you know, it, it's very interesting sometimes when you work in the public sector, and I've worked there, and uh, you can talk to people from both sectors, but in, at least in the private sector, they often say, you know, you get what you pay for. But then in the public sector, we don't say that. We say, I don't know why people don't respond better to such and such and such and such. And if you say, well, because we're not putting as much money into that, they say, well, that shouldn't be the way it is. And I always wonder how come it works at one end and doesn't work at the other or vice versa. Okay? Uh, I think, I think uh, you know, certainly we, we could pour a lot of money uh, into things that would not be successful. Uh, and I don't think I have any magic answer about how we do that successfully. I think the people, lots of them who we had up here that were legislators, probably know that better than I. But one of the things I'm pretty certain of, if we don't do anything about it, if we don't try to reverse these patterns, we're in deep trouble. Uh, and we've got to, we've got to try, we've got to do it, we've got to do it 
uh, with all kinds of oversight. We've got to do it very carefully. But if we fail, it will not be just these kids. These meaning African Americans and Hispanic kids. It will be our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren that will be uh, caught in, in the problems as well. Yes, ma'am. Then I'll get back to I'm sorry. The light is bright over there. I'll get back. Go ahead. Over here. Sure. Thank you. Um, so I work in San Antonio in Bayer County, and yep. we're working on disaggregating data for men and boys of color as part of the National My Brother's Keeper initiative. We're mm -hmm. definitely seeing, even in a, in a community that has a majority uh, a population that's typically a minority in other places, we still see persistent gaps. Um, uh, males of color being more likely to drop out, more less likely to earn a degree, more likely to be victims of violent crime. But do you see um, other things? But we saw that there are some unique indicators in Bayer County, like uh, the percent that have below a high school diploma. And do you see other um, other? ways that Bayer County is unique in that way as a kind of majority minority city. Do you think other country or other counties across the country will become more like Bayer County in, as a majority minority city? Well, I mean, what you see in Bayer County, though, are some of the statistics for Hispanics are better than they are in any other part of Texas. You know, and I think that's that multi-generational uh, thing that we've talked about before. One of the things I would say is uh, that percent that has less than a high school level of education is a big problem. And that group, if not addressed, uh, can, can carry down the population, the, the income and other figures for your whole population. Because in our society, the ability to compete in anything except manual labor jobs with less than a high school level education anymore is, is really small really small. Uh, and so one of the things I think that your area or any others really have to do is work on uh, that ensuring that, that kids get at least that high school degree. Uh, because without that, you know, doors don't open, I don't think. I just want to start off by thanking you for being here. Well, and uh, question for you. You had mentioned that there are a lot of hyperbolic figures in the media circulating about minorities whether it be about employment or immigration, whatnot, what would you say has been your strategy or experience in emphasizing statistical data and demographic analysis in policy reform? Well, uh, I'm not sure how to ha handle that in the sense that uh, certainly done quite a bit of it. Uh, and I think um, what you have to do, and I'm probably straying a little bit from that today, uh, but one, one a newspaper 15 or 20 years ago uh, referred to me as the Jack Webb of demography. <laughs> and what he meant by that as he followed through was he said, he emphasizes just the facts, mm -hmm. and the facts are themselves enough to tell you what's going to happen. And so if you start looking at the differentials we talked about in income and education, and you uh, try to do as we do, say what happens if we do different kinds of things, you see how important that education factor is. And I don't want to make ed education everything because I know there are other factors. Certainly parental influence is important. Uh, 
But, you know, one of the things that, that I'm always amazed at is as I go across the state, increasingly across the nation, and I talk to, to Hispanic groups, I, uh, I talk to African American groups, I talk to non-Hispanic white groups, and you know, the importance of education is recognized by every single group. The biggest fiction, the biggest fiction I hear is that X group doesn't understand that education is important. I have, in my years of experience, does I mean I've never heard an African American or Hispanic say that? Yes. But do I hear it very often? Hardly ever. Everybody knows that in America, and education is the coin of the realm. It is what gets you from, from point A to point B. Sir. Dr. Murdoch, thank you for t today's presentation and your decades of saying uh, very similar, if not the same thing, with regard to. Uh, I changed a couple of numbers so nobody else. Yeah, no, no, no. No, I say that in a complimentary yeah. way. The unfortunate part is it seems like the core of the solution, investment in education, both at least in Texas, if not in the country, uh, ha has not happened in the couple or three decades that you've been preaching this message. If you were czar or in total control, what would be your first th three steps to yeah. move the needle in terms of investment in education per capita, pre-K to 12 in Texas? Well, first of all, let me get something straight. If, if I was, in fact, king of the world or something, uh, actually, the important decision maker would be my spouse. Okay, okay. So, whatever I was. Okay. I, I think she's at another session, I'm hoping. Anyway. Uh, yeah, I'm often uh, disappointed that more things haven't changed. On the other hand, when I look at the magnitude of the demographic change, you know, I mean, a friend of mine, a very thoughtful uh, scholar, came up to me because we were talking, and I said, well, we still have these levels of poverty. So, and he said, you know, Steve, you're looking at this incorrectly. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, you're upset in some of these cases because we're about where we were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But he said, look at what you had to overcome, that you being the population, to overcome to stay where you were, okay? Because you had increasing numbers of people in poverty, increasing numbers of people with very low education, and so you stayed level from where you were when those were better. Well, I mean, that, that's kind of a fudge on it, I understand, but I think it's important to, to understand that. Uh, and I guess I take hope in the fact that, that I travel all over the state, and I travel many parts of the country. And you know, you get those young people who are starting out and they're excited in college, or they're excited in college, uh, and I'll bet on them every time. Now, we've got to do better in making sure that those kids get out of grammar school, get through high school, get into college, because without that, uh, they are in trouble because to, to be a non-high school graduate in the, in the U.S. economy today, it's very difficult to get the kind of jobs that you're gonna be able to pay for somebody else to go on to college. So, so I'm not, you know, I, I recognize the reality we've been under. I think we have made some changes. I can tell you uh, that I traveled to lots of colleges and universities in Texas, and 
When I get to sit down with a bunch of young African Americans or young Hispanics, etc., I see the same desire to succeed that I've seen, I see in non-Hispanic white kids and I've seen it for generations. Often it's more difficult because of economic and other factors. But that desire and that, well, first of all, the knowledge that education is the key is uniform. Everybody recognizes that. You know, you'll talk about the people who think, well, I can become, you know, the best boxer in the world or I can become the best basketball player. And yes, there's some of that. But most people understand that their kids aren't going to be that way. Education is the key. Uh, and you see that, you recognize it. And I'll give only one anecdote. Uh, and this, I hope nobody takes this wrong, but I, we, like many folks in the building where we live, have a, a woman that comes and helps clean once in a while. We've had her working with us for years. She speaks virtually no English. And one day, she comes in, my wife and I are sitting at the table, she walks in, and she's got this smile as big as her face. And she has this, and she's waving it at us. And it's the announcement for the graduation of her daughter with a bachelor's degree from the University of Houston. She was elated. And she said, my daughter does good. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that's very different than my parents. My mother, for example, wanted to uh, graduate in 1933. Uh, she, the same month she graduated, her father lost his farm. She had three letters offering her full scholarships, and she could not go to them because they couldn't afford the living expenses. She insisted we were going to go to college. We knew we had no choice. But what I'm getting at is that that spark there, that recognizing of what's possible, I don't think, you know, uh, I've seen some survey results, and I've never seen survey results where a majority of X people said it isn't important to get an education. I, I just, those just don't exist anymore, if they ever did exist. All groups recognize that education is important. That does not mean you necessarily have the socioeconomic resources to be able to actuate that, because at some levels, of, of, of economic resources, it's very difficult, uh, no matter what you do, to, to be able to do that. Yeah, I guess we're done, okay? Thank you very much for coming. <laughs>